my name is Tracy. My name is John. We've been at the chapel for six years. I don't think I ever really understood how important it was to be part of a community and to be part of that group. And for me, to have men to stand alongside and to walk with was so important. We um, really struggled for a while with infertility and not being able to have a child. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to have that dream come true. And um, one of the things that impacted us a lot, I think, was our life group, being a part of the church here and the life group that we have. It showed me what real men and real husbands are like and how to be vulnerable but still be strong. We're all busy. You know, I was busy, you were busy, but they told, you know, I forget who it was, but somebody just uh, invited us and said, you know, we all have things to do, but where are you going to spend your time? And everybody that we've met at not, not just the chapel, but in regards to these circles has been become our best friends and they've been involved in the most important parts of my life. Okay, last week, Ron used a key scripture, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, to really to communicate with us what was going on in the life of the early church, the way that they were living with one another, the way they were interacting with one another, the way that they helped one another, the way that they gave to one another. And in that community, that picture that Luke paints as the ideal community is really the same way that we should be as a set of believers today, worshiping him every day of our lives. And as Rod went through that, that passage, he identified five key um, essentials um, within that passage to kind of characterize that church. And I'm going to review those with you. The first one was the word. Okay, that everything that we do must be grounded in God's word. God's word's got to be the foundation. Worship was the second one. Vibrant and pervasive worship of God. Not only here on Sunday morning or in Robinson or in Wilkinsburg or Washington or not any, but also in every aspect of our lives are we to worship God. We talked about connect a little bit already. That's the third one, right? Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. We need to serve, number four, right? Investing our time, our talents, and our treasures in ministering to one another. And then lastly, to share. Believers so excited about what Jesus is doing in their life, we can't help but to tell other people about it. And today, what I want to do is I want to take our time to focus on that first essential, which is really foundation to everything, and that is God's Word. But before we do that, let's take the um, time to go to the Lord and ask Him to lead us. Let's bow your heads. Dear Father, we just thank you that you do love us as much as you do. Father, it's so much so that you've given us your Word written down. So that we can interact with it, we can read it, we can make it real and applicable to our lives. So fathers, we focus today on understanding how core it should be to our being. We're just asking you to, to guide us, to convict us, to challenge us. Father, to open up our minds on where we need to be and how far we need to go to get there. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for your son, Jesus. 
And it's his name we pray together. Amen. Okay, so going back to that verse, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, what I find amazing about that is that that early church was just that. They didn't have this verse to give them the guidelines of how to be with one another. In fact, that early church didn't even have the New Testament. All they had at that point was the Old Testament. They had each other. They had the, in the first-hand accounts of what Jesus taught and the first-hand account of what Jesus did. And apparently things were working well because the church was growing. The Lord was adding to their number daily as they were this kind of this um, obscure sect of the Jewish faith. And it was working so well, it actually, the church had spread to Rome. But that all changed in the summer of 64 AD when for six days and seven nights, a fire had burned, nearly destroying three quarters of the city of Rome. And all the people that lived there, they pointed to Nero and saying that, that he did this for his own um, benefit, or he did this because he could. And then Nero, defending himself, said, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was the Christians that lived in the city. And from that moment, things turned for that small church they went from being obscure to being outcast. They were ridiculed, they were mocked, they were persecuted, all because of their belief in Jesus. Ousted from the fringes of society at that point, all that they had was each other, the Old Testament promise of a coming Messiah, and the hope that the Jesus that just died was the person who he said he was. You see, it wasn't until nearly 20 years after Jesus' death that God would inspire the writing of the first letter that would be included into the New Testament, which came from James. God, over the next 45 years, would give further inspiration to all the other letters that were included into the New Testament, all the way to 95 AD, and when John wrote the book of Revelation. But it wouldn't be for another 300 years until the Bible, kind of as we know it in the form that it is today, would actually be settled by the church. So what I love about that is God knew. God knew that we, His people, His church, was going to need His Word to navigate this falling world. To, to stand up to persecution, to resist the lies and temptations of Satan, to speak to us directly. Right? That's why God inspired the writers to write all these things down. And he wanted us to have his word. He wanted us to have scripture to encourage us, to exhort us, to challenge us. But get this, mostly he gave us the Bible to transform us. I love to think of the Bible as God's love letter written to you and to me. A letter written out of love. A letter written out of compassion. A letter written out of mercy. But don't miss this. Right? This is, this is a letter written for everything we need for life and living. But it, the Bible is written with the purpose of giving us a bigger heart not a bigger head. 
See, understanding God's word is crucial to living in this broken world. Now, we all come, many of us from different backgrounds and, and how long we've been coming to church. So I just want to take a second just to kind of level set on what the Bible really is. Okay, so the Bible is comprised of 66 books. There are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. The Old Testament is the story of God's plan to bring about salvation to his people. And why do we need saved? Because of the sin in our lives. Every man and woman, you and me, are beset with sin. And the Old Testament was the promise that there was going to be a Redeemer that was going to come to fix this sin problem. Well, we know, standing on this side, that that Redeemer was Jesus Christ. Okay? The 27 books of the New Testament or that really the, the teaching of Jesus, and then some letters of encouragement, instruction from those who followed him. The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? These gospels are captured to cover the life of Jesus, to cover the teachings of Jesus. Right? They're essential to how we live in this world. We just spent a year going through the Gospels, following the, the life of Jesus through our sermon series called Hashtag Jesus. If you're new to the church or if you miss some of those sermon series, I strongly encourage you, go onto our website at biblechapel.org under the resource tab. All of our sermons are there to, to, to understand what Jesus taught and not only what he taught, but why he taught it. Okay, after those first four books, the fifth book is the book of Acts. Okay, Acts is kind of like a, it's a history book. It documents the start of the early church and it spread, as it did, as Ron talked last week, all the way to Rome. Right, where Jesus is the chief person in the, New in, in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is the chief focus, the head focus, the main focus in the book of Acts in the way that the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles. Okay, so following these first five books of the Bible, then are 22 letters encouraging those believers to follow Jesus' teaching and to live the life that he modeled, trying to battle our fleshly desires in a fallen world. These letters were written to encourage the believers, to challenge the believers, to exhort the believers, to recognize believers that had done good things. But church is messy, Right? People are sinful. So in these letters, they're not only encouraging to us, but there's also challenges. Paul had to address some very heavy things in the church during that time. Things like sexual immorality, greed, envy, idol worship, gossip, apostasy. Doesn't sound like much has changed over the last 2,000 years, has it? And I'd believe if the Apostle Paul was alive today, he'd probably be writing a letter to the Bible chapel. He's speaking of the Apostle Paul, 13 of the 22 letters in the New Testament are written by him. And starting today, running through the end of the year, 
we are going to take a look at these letters to understand what Paul was saying to them, how he encouraged them, how he challenged them, the issues that he was dealing with, not just to understand history, but to understand that our issues are similar to theirs. So how do we take Paul's teachings and apply it to our lives today to really understand what it means to live in authentic Christian community with each other? And today, we are going to start with what is what most consider to be the most significant Christian writing ever, the book of Romans. John Calvin had said that the book opened the door to all the treasures of Scripture. Now, the book of Romans is a little bit different than the other letters that Paul wrote because it doesn't seem as if Paul was writing the letters to the Romans for a specific purpose or because of a specific cause, like we'll see in the other ones. See, Paul writes the book of letters, uh, the book of Romans, trying to, to really to lay a landscape for the foundation of our faith. And then the purpose is to remind the Roman church, uh, um, to remind them of and to show them of the full treatment Not a partial treatment, but a full treatment of God's salvation, right? The central point was to explain how God gives us, grants to us, his righteousness. Okay, so at the point of his writing, this is about 57 AD that Paul writes, and he's sitting in Corinth on his third missionary journey, and at this point, he haven't even arrived and got to visit his friends in Rome, and through the first 16 verses, uh, first 15 verses of the book, he actually, you know, greets everyone, gives a salutation, and does those sorts of things. And he gets right to the point in verse 16. So take out your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, right, he's quoting from Habakkuk here. The righteous will live by faith. Right, these two verses are critical for the new Testament. They're pivotal in the New Testament. See, they they state clearly and concisely the foundational, two foundational tenets of the Christian faith. First, we see in verse 16, it says, the gospel is the saving power of God, right? That's our salvation, that we come through and be saved through the gospel, What Paul goes on to say in verse 17 is that the gospel is carried on by his power. See, the gospel is not a static thing. The gospel is actively at work in our lives, right? It's not a a one and done, right? Great, I've, I've, I've accepted, I've said the sinner's prayer, I've accepted Jesus, now I can move on with the rest of my life. No, the gospel is inside of us. It's powerful, It's alive. It motivates us, reminding us all the time of how much God loves us. 
See, the gospel is not simply the four spiritual laws on how to give your life to Christ. And if you've been coming um, over the last several weeks, we just wrapped up our general admission sermon series, and the gospel was plainly presented in every one of those um, 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 services. And I typically would use something that's called the, the Romans Road to talk about these four spiritual laws, and I want to remind you of that today. Right, The first spiritual law is that God loves us and has a plan for us, but we are all sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Spiritual law number two is that this sin causes us to be eternally separated from God. That's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Spiritual law number three, we can't fix our sin problem, but God chose to fix it for us. By sending his son, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love for this, for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And spiritual law number four, that if you believe Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you were justified. And it's with your mouth do you profess and are saved. That's salvation. That's a basic understanding of how much God loves us. Right? There's no denying that, that, that our salvation, that our eternity in heaven comes through knowing and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And without recognizing how desperate or how depraved that we really are without that is a really bad spot to be in, right? Because we've got to get to a point where we know that our wayward heart can only be fixed, can only be righted by a relationship with Jesus. But see, in Romans, Paul doesn't stop there. Now, we can't go through the whole book of Romans. We did a, Ron did a, an amazing um, set of sermons on Romans. You can find them on the website as well. I'm going to talk about the outline of the book today. And um, what we're going to see is the way that Paul, you outline this book, we're going to see how salvation is presented. After verses, starting with verse 18, we just read 16 and 17, after he kind of sets the tone for the whole book, um, um, 118 to 320 really talks about our condemnation and how our, we have this deep, desperate need for God's righteousness. Uh, chapter 3, 21 through 521 talks about justification and, and how God's righteousness is made possible for you and for me. Romans 6, start of 6, going to um, 8, talks about sanctification and glorification, right? Sanctification be our, our growing in Christ, becoming more and more like Him as we worship Him, as we pray to Him, as we follow Him. And glorification is God's ultimate removal from the sins from our lives when we close our eyes and open up our face um, to see his face. And then lastly, chapter 9 through 11 talks about God's sovereignty in our lives, his plan for our lives. But don't get this, right? Because Romans does not stop after chapter 11. There's 16 chapters. And chapters 12 through 16 focuses on application. Focuses on what do we do with this gift? 
It talks about our responsibility of being in a relationship with Christ. It talks about how to put our faith in action, how we're to love one another, how we're to care for one another, how we sacrifice for one another, how we live with each other. Because you see, our life does not stop and our growth does not stop after salvation. Just because our eternity is secure in heaven doesn't mean that our work is done. If you're saved, we celebrate with you. That is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. But the question is, now what? Think about it like this when you're in high school. Right? When you were in high school and you wanted to get out, all you could think about is graduating high school. Congratulations, you did, but the question is, now what? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? You got married. You finally got married. Congratulations, you're married. Now what? Type of husband in wife are you going to be? Congratulations, you had your first child that you longed for. Now what? Type of mother and father are you going to be? Well, the same is true here. Congratulations, you're saved. Your eternity is secure in heaven forever with the living God. Nothing can take that away from you. Nothing you can do can take that away from you. But now what? Type of follower of Jesus are you going to be? Is it one like Paul, who is not ashamed of the gospel, who is willing to, to risk his very life for his belief in Jesus? Or one like the religious leaders of that day, some of them who came to believe in Jesus? but wouldn't announce it publicly because they feared what man would do to them or their position more than they feared God. You know, kind of like a closet Christian, one embarrassed by the gospel, afraid of what your friends or boyfriend or girlfriend or your coworkers might say. You see, the gospel is not just about coming to Christ. It's living in Christ. See, after salvation, we are in a process of becoming more and more like Him. That's sanctification. We need to grow in Him. And we need to take that free gift, that free gift of salvation, that free gift of grace, we need to take that seriously. There's a responsibility that goes with that. Not only individually, but collectively as the church body. Remember, Christ gave himself up for the church. So let me ask, now what will you do with the free gift of grace and the free gift of salvation? We love the free gift, right? If I asked you your favorite Bible verse, many of you would say Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, turn to there for me.
Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, we love this verse, right? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. We love that verse. But guess what? There's a verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Say it with me. Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, we've got a choice to make, right? We're not saved by our works. That's a free gift. But we're saved to good works. And we've got to make a choice on whether we are going to live a life boldly for Christ, being a vital part of the church and, and making these necessary connections to live in Christian community with one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another, supporting one another, ministering to one another. Or are we going to live on the fringes of Christian community coming to church on Sunday 10 minutes late for service and scooting out five minutes early so you don't have to interact with anybody. See, here's the deal, right? Church is not an organization. Church is a living organism which we play a vital role in. Right? Church is not a social club. This is a place for deep spiritual connection. Church is not a place you go or a thing that you do. The reality is, is you are the church. You can't separate yourself from the gospel. You can't separate yourself from the responsibility. You can't separate yourself from God's love inside of you. It goes everywhere you are. It's not like you put on the gospel and come to church and worship and go home and take the gospel off and put your worldly clothes on. The gospel's inside of us. And we have to live that out regardless of where we go. We can't separate it from ourselves. We are the church everywhere. We are Christ's ambassador everywhere we go. If your child's got a soccer game this afternoon, guess what? You are the church. If you're going to go have lunch at Max and Irma's or Atria's or go shop at Giant Eagle, guess what? You don't stop being the church when you walk out those doors. You're the church there. You're the church at Duquesne. You're the church in Wilkinsburg School District. You're the church in McKee's Rocks. You're the church in Trinity. You're the church in Washington Jefferson. But get this. The responsibility. You're also the church sitting in the bar. You're also the church sitting in the strip club with your buddies and your customers. You're also the church as you make fun of your spouse in front of friends at a dinner party. We can't walk away from the gospel. We are the church, regardless of where we go. You know what I hear from most people when I ask them, why don't you go to a worship service? I interact a lot 
with our baseball association here locally. Why don't you go to church? Why don't, why don't you go to worship service? Why aren't you believe in God? You know what the most common response is? Well, so-and-so there goes to your church and um, I saw them do blah, 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 and blah, or say blah, 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 and blah, and I've got enough in that in my life as it is. If that's what God and faith is about, I don't need any more of that. You know, sometimes we are our own worst enemies, God's worst enemies at times. You see, the problem lies between our rhetoric, right, between what comes out of our mouth and the gap between how we really live our lives. Because you see, instead of giving the unbeliever more evidence for their disbelief in God, we should make them doubt their disbelief in God. Don't miss that. We should live our lives in such a way that we should make the unbeliever doubt their disbelief in God. That's the way we need to live a gospel-centered life in everything that we do. What I want to do is I want to take a minute to, to share something with you that was written in the London Times by a guy named Matthew Paris. And this is, this is exactly at the heart of what I'm talking about. Not, forget me, this is at the heart of what Paul is talking about. Listen to these words as I read this. He writes, Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as Nyasaland. Today, it's Malawi. And the Times, Christ, uh, the Times Christmas Appeal, which is kind of, a, it's a charity thing that the London Times does, includes a small British charity working there. This charity is called Pump Aid and helps rural communities install a single pump, letting people keep their villages, village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too. One I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, he writes this, now as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of other secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation, he writes. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Look how he continues. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical side of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of that package. 
But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick. They do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say that the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help. Then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. And look how he concludes. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely in which I cannot help observing. That is the type of life gospel-centered life, grounded in God's word that we are to live. Those missionaries are displaying that in Africa. From an, uh, written by an observer watching them, not even interacting with them personally. And guys, we don't need to go to Africa to make a difference. God has placed us right where we are. We've got children right here in Allegheny County, in Washington County, that need foster parents, that need help, that are in a desperate situation. And as a church, we care about that. Right? There's an information meeting right after this service, out those doors and to the right in the South Hills, to learn how to be foster parents. You can actually become certified here at the church in three Saturdays to care for people here. But not all of you are called to do that, but God has placed you in the circumstances that you are to live this kind of life. Right here in Peters Township, or Upper St. Clair, or Washington, or Wilkinsburg, or Amity, or Lone Pine, or Nashville, or Orlando, Atlanta, wherever you're watching us from. This is where God has you. And this is no different than Jesus taught directly. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. He's going back and forth. What I love about this, he's going back and forth with Philip. Philip is, is questioning him and wants some proof on who Jesus was. You know, John chapter 14, verse 9, we're going to look at. Okay, verse 8, we see Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us, right? Prove to yourself. Show me the Father, and I'll believe who you are. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, rather it's the Father living in me who's doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Get this, verse 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. And get this, he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So what Jesus is saying here is, I tell you the truth that anyone who has faith in me, faith in what? Faith that I am the Lord. Faith that I am God himself. 
right? And if you do have that faith in me, you will do. Not might do some stuff. He said, you're going to do the same things that I'm doing. The next sentence continues. You're even going to do greater things than what Jesus did. Those are Jesus' own words right there. That's what Jesus tells us if we believe in him, have faith in him. Turn to John chapter 8. Turn back just a little bit to the left, 8, verses 31 and 32. This is the same thing that Jesus is saying to these Jewish believers at this point. He said to the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? When he says, you will hold to my teachings, what's he saying? If you were doing what I taught you and what I showed you, you were really my disciples. See, for us to respond like this, for us to do greater things than Jesus did, for us to model a life that Jesus taught, to, to model a life that Jesus modeled for us, we have to be grounded in God's word. We have to have the gospel centered to our lives. The gospel has to be the, the middle of, the reason for, the direction of every decision that we make. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in your office or cube at South Point or downtown Pittsburgh. It doesn't matter if you're a classroom in middle school, high school, elementary school, or college. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, or a stay-at-home mom. Is the gospel needs to be centered in the, in, in, in the core of our being, not just receiving faith, but living a life that God has challenged us to because we have the love of God inside of us. You can't make a decision separated from that. You can't leave the gospel behind. So the question to each one of us is now what? Do we do with the love of God that's inside of us? And you see, this is the very question that is at the very heart of living grounded, which is our discipleship material. This 12-week study is written to help every believer, regardless of where you are on your journey, be grounded in the essentials of the Christian faith. Our elder, Greg DeVore, puts it like this, that living grounded is the process by which believers grow and are equipped to become more like Christ. And Greg's right because we're, we're grounded on God's word. See, what's important we can't miss is God still rules today by his word. So we have to be grounded in it, living a gospel-centered lives. And the essentials that we've laid out here, we have re completely rewritten this from much feedback that came through the first go-round that we had with this. From the ground up, all produced here at the Bible Chapel with Ron leading the way on this. This material is, it's amazing, and, and we're encouraging you, all of you, whether you went through the first version or not, to get involved in this. 
is to, to recenter your focus, to recenter your walk on God's word, to, to, to live grounded based on God's word, to, to, to re-grasp and to hold on to these essentials of the Christian faith. You can buy the books. The books are available now. If you, they're on our website. You can go on to biblechapel.org. It's the main splash screen on the page. You can buy them in chapter two. There's some tables set up in the lobby. Uh, I'm sorry, up, in the, up by chapter two at every one of our campuses. If you paid online, you can pick them up right in the lobby. We're challenging you guys getting involved and we've worked hard to remove any excuses from being involved. We're going to be able to meet your needs wherever they are in the South Hills, right? We're going to, starting next Sunday, a class at 9 o'clock and a class at 1045, both hours. There's going to be a small group, a home small group on Monday evening, starting October 5th. I am going to teach a class here in the South Hills Wednesday night, starting October 7th. I'd love to make us have to use this room to teach that class. If that doesn't work for you, one-on-one, couple-to-couple by request. And in the multi-sites, Robinson, October 4th, next week, 9 a.m., this starts. In Washington, Tuesday nights, um, October 6th, it starts. Wilkinsburg, you just finished up a big group. But all of these things through here, no excuses to get involved. And we're challenging you, each one of you, to get involved, to get grounded in God's Word. Right? There's nothing that works like the church when the church is working right. And the church can only work right when we are living gospel-centered lives grounded in God's word. It's the only way it will work. That is what we are called to be. You think of where the church started in Europe and Christianity is basically void in the UK, in Germany, in those countries. And there was a study done by the Evangelical Alliance on trying to understand what had happened to the vibrant church in England. And through this study, they, they looked and they realized that they were not equipping, they were not making disciples which can go out and live an impactful life out in the world. The study goes on to say that their strategy was a convert and retain strategy. Save them from the world and bring them inside the church walls. Well, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus has a, a transform and release strategy. And that's what we're challenging all of us to do, is to train. We want to train you and release you out in the world to live gospel-centered Bible-grounded lives. Lives that this fallen world so desperately need to see. And do you believe that God's choosing you and me to go do that? God doesn't want to fit the gospel into the world. He wants the gospel to transform the world and he wants you and me to be part of that. Not to huddle down inside these walls. Guys, we're praying for revival through you. We want to see the city changed. We want to see lives transformed. And that's going to happen through you. Because that's who God chooses to use. You and me. Isn't that amazing? 
Father, we thank you for choosing us, for giving us your word. Father, for filling our heart with the gospel, your love inside of us. And Father, we thank you for trusting us to transform a world that so desperately needs your love and your hope. Father, I'm asking you to encourage everyone sitting here. Remind them that you have given them the Holy Spirit. You have given them everything that they need to go do what you've called them to do exactly where they are. Father, we are your church. Build your kingdom here, now. Set your church on fire to do your work. And we do that in your son's name, Jesus. And it's his name we pray together. Amen.